listener production. There were times when, you know, I couldn't set foot outside the house or if you turned up somewhere, all heads would turn and everyone would come to talk to you. And I found and do find that to be a very uncomfortable position to be in. When I'm performing is different, so that's my way out of it. When people come up, it's, yeah, I'm cracking gags and being a goof. I guess it's a way of covering the awkwardness because I don't feel as comfortable just talking by myself. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Rove McManus has been a permanent fixture on our entertainment landscape. You've seen him interview the biggest names in showbiz on his television show, Rove Live. Heard him host his own radio show, watch the project which his production company has created, or laugh with him during his stand-up shows. And you can catch Rove on stage for his current awesome source tour. Rove's talent prints are on so much of our popular Aussie culture. But how much do you know about the man behind this incredible body of work? I wanted to discover more about Rove, talk about where his comedy chops comes from and how he navigates life in the spotlight. Rove. It is so great to chat. <laughs> to it's chat been a pleasure. Also, I, is that, is that, are we done? Is no, that no, it? We are not done. We haven't even begun. Oh, God. But what I love is just being able to see you again. I haven't <laughs> seen you for so long. Yes. We first crossed paths via the TV screens many, many years ago, and you're frowning because you can't obviously remember no, this. No, I, I want to see if our stories align. Well, okay. Well, my, Do you want to go first? I'll go first. Why don't we first. write our answers on a piece of paper and we'll put them in a little envelope. Okay, you go. What do you I'll think? I'll go first. So I very occasionally would fill in for Sandra Sully ah. doing the late news. Yes. And that was such a thrill for me because that was like grown-up time. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, you'd made it. And also the lighting was great on that set. So you'd feel really good. (laughs) (laughs) Peek behind the curtain. Gotcha. It was like rock star lighting. And you were doing Rove Live. And at the end of the show, you would be throwing to the late news. That's right. And those handful of times when you would say, and let's now go to the late news with Jessica Rowe. I'd be like, oh my God, (laughs) Rove said my name. And so that was my first brush with you and I was just like, yes, I have made it. How long did I make you wait? Because we would go very long. Always. And that is the thing. You would Mm. go over. Yes. I'd be sitting on the set waiting. We're like, yep, they're in the last break. They're ready to go. Oh, my God. And they're still Still going. And they're still going. You would forever run over. Yep. I didn't mind, though because you would always rate very well and it would mean (laughs) that we would have this great audience who obviously were there for you and then they would carry over into the late news. And this was at a time when we had quite a bit of flexibility to go over. A a 9.30 show meant to finish at 10.30. I think we had pretty much an unofficial, look, we all know it's 10.45 because we used to have to call our network executive at you know, 10.20 p.m. where we would say, unfortunately, we're running a bit long. We still have two segments to go. Can we get a bit longer? So he was always pretty good at like, yep, sure, no problem. They were Back then, I assume they were normally watching anyway. I think after a few weeks or months, possibly years, it just became, you know, can you just stop calling because I want to get to sleep? We'll just say it's okay. (laughs) You can go over. But yes, as we have often said, it was a different time and a different era. But to me, that's what I liked about it. It was live television. Live TV nowadays is still pretty structured. In many respects, it feels like it's lost the reason for being live. And it's a strange thing because it's the one superpower and ace up its sleeve that free-to-air network television has. And to me, it doesn't utilise it enough against the streaming services. Well, it's spontaneity, isn't it? Spontaneity. And you want to be watching things and you're thinking, oh, what's about to happen? Yes. 
And often that was happening for us. We had a show where the entire lighting grid just a fuse blew and it went to total darkness and we were three minutes from going on air. And so the studio was pitch black and I ran out and said to the audience, well, I don't know what's going to happen. And it wasn't like, well, we need to fix this and so we'll have a break and we'll start recording in 20 minutes when it's ready. No, it's like the countdown is on. There's nothing we can do. And I was so excited about the idea of people switching on the show and I said, I just need one torch. That's the only thing I need is one torch that I can shine under my face and no one could find a torch. And then I went, even better, great. We're just going to, it's going to be blackness. Who knows what you'll see. And then right as we're literally getting the countdown, 30 seconds, 29, the generator for the backup grid has come on and the lights have just slowly started just because they have to warm up, slowly started to come back on. I was so disappointed because you're not going to start the show by saying, oh, my God, you'll never guess what just happened because the people at home don't care. But there was a crackle in that audience. That showed a particular sizzle because they knew what had happened. And to me, that was also the joy of people coming to watch the show live. We would release tickets at the start of the year and we'd have 40 weeks booked out within 24 hours. And it was just, it was fun. It was fun to do. It was like a party every week. And hopefully that was the same for people watching at home as well. You talk about the joy of it. How did you feel doing a show like that? I loved it. It was everything that I wanted it to be. And when I started, it was the style of show that I loved. So I had grown up enjoying comedy. I started acting, but I loved comedy more. What was it about comedy? Well, I can tell you exactly when it happened. In high school, I did drama classes in school and we had our year 12 end of year production and we did a very heavy dramatic piece. And then there was the Year 11 production that did uh, a very high comedy farce. And they didn't have enough people in their year group to cover all the roles. So as the senior students, we were asked to come in and help them out as well. Our drama piece was fine. I had one of the lead roles and it was a bit meh. You do your thing, you blah, the blah, the blah, the lines, and then afterwards it's the clappity, clappity, and maybe if you see someone afterwards, they'll say, I really enjoyed that, and you go, good, I guess. You do comedy? We had to do a a number of shows, and I was a bartender character. It wasn't even one of the bigger roles. But I just played it for laughs because it was a comedy. And the first show was great because you deliver a line, and if it's meant to get a laugh, it gets a laugh. And you know that that audience is enjoying it straight away. If you do the next thing and it doesn't get a laugh, oh, okay, I've kind of lost them. And then you might have to get them back. First show was fine. Second show, somebody forgot a line. And there's this terrible silence as everyone's kind of looking at each other. And I'm looking at the guy whose line it's meant to be. And I know that he's just blanked. You can see the fear in his eyes. And so I just improvised. And I threw out a line and I just started playing around until I could see him start to calm down and the fog cleared in his head and then he was able to go. But I improvised a line which got a laugh and that's when I went, oh, this is what I want to do. This is, it's like straight into your veins. It's amazing. And the idea that you can change from night to night and it can get a different reaction, it's the literal definition of insanity. Because don't they say insanity is like you do the same thing over and over and expect a different result? That's what comedy is. You can do the same thing every night and for some reason the audience wasn't into it night one, but night two they are. Okay, great. You talking about, you know, looking at your mate and seeing, oh, my goodness, he's blanked, he doesn't know what he's doing, kind of reminds me of what my beautiful friend Denise Drysdale, Nisi, she's one of my best friends, and she has taught me about the idea of look, really look, listen, really listen. Mm. You're actually in the moment. Yeah. And that's what comedy is. And you're responding to what is happening in front of you. Yes. Rather than being so precious about the material that you've already learnt or rehearsed. Yeah. And also in that moment, me going, well, it's not my line. It's not my line, mate. It's your line. Come on. Or sitting there going, well, it's not my line, 
but I'll do something. Oh, but what if I end up looking like the idiot? Or what if everyone thinks it was me who forgot my line? Because if there's silence, whoever speaks next is the person who didn't. But instead just going, well, I'll try and get us out of this horrible predicament. And if he doesn't have anything, well, I'll give it another moment. And then hopefully someone else will pick up the ball and run with them. I haven't done a lot of improv, but it's that very basic premise they have of yes and. If somebody says something, if they point a finger at you and say, I've got a gun, you don't say, no, that's a banana. You have to say yes and we are going to go rob a bank. That's the basic premise behind comedy. And that's almost, to jump ahead, is how then for me getting into doing the type of television I did, which came with asking people questions, but I never ever would call myself an interviewer. That is for better people than I, Jess. And I'm not a journalist or anything like that. I was just a comedian who had a talk show. But you'd listen. You're a good listener. And I used to always say to everybody backstage beforehand, right, we've got a list of questions. In some cases, the questions are based off answers that you have given us because it leads to a funny story. However, we are both two grown adults who I feel can hold a conversation for seven minutes. So let's just see where it goes. And sometimes people were into it, sometimes they weren't. But to me, it was about listening and reacting and looking and knowing sometimes you're looking in that person's eyes and you can see, oh, I've asked you something you weren't prepared for and now you're shitting yourself. So I will go back to the script. I'll go back to the plan until you calm down but then maybe we can go off on a tangent or see where it takes us. And that, to me, was what kind of got some of the best moments we ever had. What was your best moment, do you think? There's two. One takes us back to going over time, and the other one is very yes and. So the first one was, in the very early days, actually, Billy Connolly was on, who, you know, comedic genius, just one of those people that every now and again we would get who... I just want this to go well. It's like a first date. It's like, oh, please, please, please let him enjoy this experience and please, please, please let him think I'm funny, but also not too funny. Please like me. Please (laughs) like me. And he was great, but we had, once again, a technical malfunction where I didn't like earpieces. I didn't have an earpiece. Uh, In later years, we did, but early days, I came from a stand-up background. I was very precious about cue cards and auto cues and any artificial means of getting word to me. Plus, I liked the organic nature of growing up with shows like Hey, Hey, It's Saturday and David Letterman's Late Show and The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That moment of, you know, someone might need to be looking off camera because something's going wrong and you incorporate the crew and just what's in the moment becomes part of the show. So that was always something for me. If someone needed to get word to me, we had a floor manager, that's the way it would work. Just a person who is literally behind your main camera and is the one who lets you know they will sometimes hold up a card to say it's one minute till we have to finish this segment and then get to an ad break. There's a, you know, a gesture where they'll, like they're they spinning their winding, finger in the air, which is wind, wind up. it up because everything needs to go to time, that sort of thing. So that was my lifeline to know what was going on. But there was a technical issue where... She was not getting word from the director as to how long things were going. So I wasn't getting any word in my ear. I was not seeing anything from our producer. So I was just chatting to Billy. Now, normally if you would go longer than seven minutes for an interview, you would have a break and you would come back and keep talking. This was like the end of the show. It was our final guest So we're just chatting away and it's Billy Connolly. He just has me enthralled. Every story leads to another story. I don't think we even touched a single question we were meant to get to. And if we did, we'd certainly burnt them up by this stage. So he and I just talking, he would tell a story. I would laugh. I would then ask a follow-up question or send him somewhere else. And knowing that in the past, if we had gone long, someone would call our network representative and say, we're going long, and they would say, fine, no problem. I just assume that's what's going on. I'm, wow, this is going so well. They just want to keep it rolling. Why would anyone switch off? I'm loving this. Surely everyone's loving this. And eventually the line has opened back up to the floor manager. She gives me the wind-up. I'm like, okay, Mr. Billy Connolly, we have to wrap things up now. And even at this point, we've gone well over time. A seven-minute interview has gone for Jess 20 
minutes. Oh, 20 what? minutes. Oh. So you can only imagine how furious the oh, newsroom is. yes. And probably what the newsroom is getting is we're wrapping him up and he is ignoring us because he's a living a fanboy moment or whatever. So then I have had to say to Billy Connolly at this point, sorry, we have to wrap things up. We have to finish up uh, yeah. because Sandra Sully, the newsreader who's on after us, we, we can't keep her waiting too long. Really? No, we can't. We get in trouble. Bitch. <laughs> And Sandra Sully, God love her, has wrapped up the late news that night with, well, that's all the very important late news we have tonight, Mr. Billy Connolly. We'll catch you tomorrow. It was wonderful. But the point being that in that moment, I'm listening to him. I'm not panicking going, oh, God, I've only got one question left. Uh, 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 and it seems they want this to keep going. Well, uh, what do I do? What do I do? I'm just living in the moment and I'm like, like, look across. Nothing seems to be happening. I'm not getting any word. Let's just keep chatting. And even for Billy, he would have had a third of the time. And even after 20 minutes, he's like, oh, geez, you cut me off. It's like, no one ever had 20 minutes. <laughs> Mate. <laughs> so that was the first sort of being in the moment of what is possible if you just allow yourself to sit and that person is also in the moment as well. And it was a really lovely experience that I got to have. The other one, which is the more yes and version, was Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. Will had been on the show many, many times and he and I got to become quite matey. So the previous time, Will had kind of this running gag that he liked to wear something silly on the show. And when he and John had been on previously, their luggage got lost and so they wore their Qantas pyjamas. Um, <laughs> very in-the-know people who have flown in a particular end of the plane know that if you're on a long-haul flight, uh, you, they give you pyjamas on the plane. It's very wanky, but just so you know. So they are wearing their Qantas pyjamas and they had to do the show like that. So then it becomes, right, well, now you're both going to be wearing an outfit. So I didn't have any expectation we had gone through, they were going to be there for two segments and the idea was that, you know, we do our normal thing. We've got stories about making the film, being together and, you know, you have a rough idea of where you want to go and you've done your homework. I was told, I think it was day of, a live show. So John and Will have an idea and this is all we are allowed to tell you because they don't want you to know. There may or may not be a costume and there may or may not be a prop. Oh, how wonderful. And I'm like, do not tell me anything else. And then when they arrived, they were in their dressing room and normally I would see a guest before the show. I think it's polite. But I knocked on their door and they've opened it barely a crack so I could just <laughs> see their two faces comically one on top of the other. Like two kids, it's just their eyes and their noses and they're like, hi, how are you? Good to see you. Don't come in. And we shut the door and that was it. They have discovered somehow that the other guest on the show that night is Steve Hooker, who won gold for the Olympic pole vaulting. They have then decided what they would do is dress as pole vaulters themselves. So he was on first. They then walk out. When I say, please welcome Will Ferrell and John C. Riley." I then see a stick emerge from our guest oh. walk-on as they come on with a pole vault... <laughs> dressed in green and gold tracksuits and headbands, and their whole bit is, oh, my God, I can't believe you booked another pole vaulter when we were coming on to talk about pole vaulting. So I did, I yes, and, rather than, well, you're not really, you. all right, let's talk about the movie. So I went with it and I'm like, yeah, well, but also you two did it as the first two-man pole vault, which mustn't be easy. Tell me how you got into it. And we improvised an entire segment with them pretending to be Olympic pole vaulters. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, Steve's the best, Steve's the best. But you know what? We worked our asses off. For you this, did. Right? <laughs> and to be honest, we let Steve win. <laughs> and it's not often you see a two-man pole vault. And that's what I love. It's not easy. That's the way easy. you guys do it. No, to time is it, it, is, is it. Is it not easy? It's... It's totally against the rules. <laughs> so then we get to the first ad break. 
And I said to them, this is the most amazing thing. And they're like, thank you very much for going with it. And I said, look, we can talk about the movie if you want when we get back after the break. I'll make sure we, we get the plug away for that. But also up to you, do you want to stick with this bit or not? And they went, oh, let's just see what happens. So we've come back and I did at least give them one question about the movie and working together. And then they very quickly went, yeah, but then also the training we had to do for the pole vaulting. So I went, let's just stick with this. So we did two segments where we barely referenced their movie and instead talked to them as if they were pole vaulters. Steve Hooker was just ecstatic with joy that two of the biggest comedy superstars on the planet wanted to emulate and reference him. And that, to me, was one of those experiences of what I would try to get out of people. You would want to go and see that movie. You would know it's out. You don't need me to say, hey, they're in town to plug something. Of course they are. Posters are everywhere. And what you want is those guys are funny. They seem like they're good fun. I want to see their movie. You don't need me to talk about, what was it like working on the script and the this and the that. That's someone else's job. My job is I want these people, whoever it might be, to look like they are the most fun, that they are just great people to hang out with, that you like them, and if you like them, you will go see their film, read their book, listen to their album. And that was wonderful. And I don't know how many other people would have been comfortable on a live show to say, I don't want to know what they have in mind. But to me, that was the whole point of doing what we did. Did you ever get nervous, though? Were there some guests that you would think, oh, or starstruck? Starstruck, yes, but it was always the weird ones like professional wrestlers or other comedians. Uh, The one that I was nervous about was Harrison Ford. Well, he's notoriously prickly, isn't he? Well, this is the thing. This is the thing. I would always, I form my own opinions. People would say he's prickly and he's difficult and he doesn't want to be asked about this and he doesn't want to be asked about that. And I sat there thinking, for all the films he has done over the years, Star Wars and Indiana Jones, that's all anybody wants to talk about. So if I'm Harrison Ford, I too would be sick of talking about Star Wars and Indiana Jones. So I get it. And he was wonderful. And I just made sure, I said, let's just have a bit at the end where we'll just say we've got a quick fire round of questions. So much stuff to talk to you about. We don't have enough time. And I'll just put a loaded question in there about... If you had to kill off Indiana Jones or Han Solo, which one would you want to kill off? So I get to ask him about it, but it's in a way where you're sick of these characters, you want to get rid of them. True or false, you wanted a different ending for Han Solo in Return of the Jedi. I thought the son of a bitch should die. (laughs) There we go. Uh, In uh, the classic uh, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark scene with you and the swordsman in black, you shot him because you were sick that day. I thought the son of a bitch should die. death of being asked if there will be an Indiana Jones 4? I think the son of a bitch should die. (laughs) It was wonderful and I just, for all the fans, we haven't avoided it, but at the same time, there's more to this man than... Just those roles. Just those roles. And I found him to be quite lovely, but, you know, that's the difference in, you know, make sure you do the right thing, be a gracious host, take the word literally. They're coming into your house Let's be good about this. So that's how I tried to treat it most times. But, yeah, you would get nervous, but I don't know. I just tried to be I tried to be as level-headed as I could. In the early days, it was difficult. I got very nervous in, like, the first year and a half because I thought every person who's on this show is more important than me, no matter who they are. I feel like if the guest went, well, you're an idiot, the audience would go, yeah, you are right, famous celebrity person. But um, how did you reconcile that? I just often- got good at it. Ah. I just got good at it and went, no, 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 this is my house. This is my house. And when did you know you were good at it? I think it was just the confidence. You just have the confidence in, no, no, I, I can do this. And then it was actually put to the test when Chris Rock was on and he made a joke about we had magazines on the coffee table as set dressing and he was just picking them up and just slagging off what was on the cover and like being a bit dismissive. And I felt the audience kind of going, well, hang on, whoa, 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 what's this about? Like he's just walked out and just kind of basically gone, well, this looks, this is dumb. And I felt the audience kind of go, no, no, wait a minute, no. And I thought, oh, okay, yeah, so they're on my side here. They're not with Chris Rock. They're like, hang on, this is, this is Rove's show. This is our show that we are proud of here in this country and don't come in and hang shit on it. And it was amazing entertainment. And as you say, the audience was on your side, so much so that you got three gold logies. I did. 
That's pretty cool. It's not bad. Come on. <laughs> Look, it is good. It is wonderful. It is very humbling as someone who is an unabashed Logies fan and what they represent in this country and for our business. I do not take in any way lightly the fact that I have any Logies at all, let alone a stack for the show and for me personally as a presenter, but then also gold in particular. When I started on Channel 31, which is like, you know, was community before, it's community television. It was barely two people could probably watch it. And when I started doing that, I had a five-year plan. In five years' time, if I could get an invite to the Logies, an invite to the Logies, I will be absolutely stoked. Like that's what a thing to have achieved. Within five years, I'd won a Logie. So that was that was pretty cool. So they've always meant a lot to me. So to also be part of the upper echelon who have also achieved gold is very cool. And back when it was much less competitive and awful, or not no less competitive, but you didn't have to campaign. Well, it was you could before just, social media. You could accept it? the nomination graciously and then just wait for the results on the night instead of having to tap dance and put your hat out and go, please, 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 please. And then if you don't win, you go, oh, why did I do that? What well, feels so humiliating. You could just enjoy being nominated and then on the night you win or you lose and you can just be gracious or not to whoever won on the night. But I do feel for anyone who's nominated now that you don't even get to enjoy being nominated because it just becomes a race and a... Or cringe, and I think we shouldn't cringe. We should actually applaud yeah. the people who have made it yeah. in our industry. Well, I know, so I, don't, I won't name their name because they might not want me to, but someone I know who has been nominated for gold who's not on social media at all and automatically went, well, I'm not going to win, but is a wonderful performer in their field that would absolutely be in with a chance. Unless you go, well, yeah, have you got a campaign and have you put your videos up on socials and stuff? And if you haven't, then, well, of course, yeah, well, because that's how it works now, which is a shame. Tell me. Oh, I will. When you were little, you know, you would be I'd in your room. Little. Well, I know, I'm young at heart too. I think that's the key. Oh, it's a height joke, but yeah, both, it goes <laughs> no, both ways. I'm ignoring ways. the height it joke. Works both ways. <laughs> Yeah, when you were a little boy and you'd be there in your room doing your drawing, your <laughs> mum would be nagging you saying, come on, come out and play, but you weren't oh, into Oh, you that. have done your homework yeah. and you've spoken to mum. That's very, much, that's very much my childhood, yes. But you'd be, you know, doing your amazing little drawing. Yes. Did you ever dream that that would then launch who you are, the career and the life that you've had and no. are having? No, because I wasn't an extrovert. I don't know that I still am. I don't know. My wife would say, like, when I meet someone at a function who I've never met before or if you're out and about and someone comes up and says hi, when the person leaves, she gives me a little elbow and goes, well, they got a little show. They got a little show. Because it's that. It's more like that. I put on a little tap dance number because I, I don't feel as comfortable just talking by myself. I don't know. It's, it's really? a weird thing. So, it's a weird thing. So you're more comfy on a stage or on a set talking? Well, even then, but that's performing though. That performing's different. If you were to say, hey, go to a function where like you're the guest of honor, like not like a birthday, but you know, if you, if you go somewhere, there were times when, you know, I couldn't set foot outside the house or if you turned up somewhere you know, that all heads would turn and everyone would come to talk to you. And that's a very, I find and found and do find that to be a very uncomfortable position to be in. When I'm performing is different. So that's my way out of it is to, when people come up, it's, yeah, I'm cracking gags and, and being a goof because it's, I guess it's a way of covering the awkwardness of, because I will always try to put it back on the other side. Well, what do, but what do you do? And tell me about you. That's and, so interesting. And people don't want to do that. But it's like, I don't like, and then all I can, in my ridiculous little head, is if I'm talking to someone and I'm telling a story, and like it might just be someone's asking me the same thing that I've been asked all the time. It's like, well, why are you doing a thing anymore? And I miss the thing and do the thing. And then someone else might come in and I'm going, well, you know, the this and the that of it all. And someone else will come in who asked me the same thing before. And I feel like turning around and going, this isn't just me. I'm not just 
saying the same thing over. This person has asked me that question as well. So it doesn't just feel like, oh, he's going on about that again. No, it's just all, it's all anyone wants to ask me about. So I always will try to, yeah, but enough about me, what about you? And oh, my life's not as interesting as yours. It is. Of course it is. It's new and it's shiny to me. And I don't know what you do, but oh my God, like you can meet someone who has the most amazing job in the world to you because it's something that's out of the ordinary. But I also get that people want that side of things as well. So yeah, when I was younger, no, I didn't want to get up and perform. I was enrolled in drama classes, like after school, drama classes. It was really sort of, it was loose improv kind of stuff. You just sort of play out scenes and things like that. Because my year three teacher said to my parents, hey, this kid of yours has got a pretty wild and creative imagination that we can't really harness properly. There's no outlet for it here at school. And I'm worried that he will switch off. He will just get bored with school. And he's a smart kid, but this creative side of him is off the chart and he needs somewhere to be able to get that out and have that harnessed somehow. So you should enrol him in drama classes. I remember my parents bringing that up with me and me going, oh, I don't know about that. But I enjoyed it because it was a group environment and that was good. But then the first time it was like, all right, we're going to go off, separate into by yourself and then think of a scene based on this situation and then we'll each perform it in front of the group. And my name was called first and I, not froze, but I was just quiet and just I didn't know what I was doing and it felt awful and what am I, this is very awkward and I feel self-conscious And then I had a friend of mine who got up after me and he hadn't been there for as long as I had. And he got up and he was fantastic, confident. I could hear everything he was saying. It was a great scene. And I remember at that time going, well, I'm not going to let that happen to me again. That was great. I was engaged and I know I wasn't that. And next time I get an opportunity to do that again, I'm not going to ruin the moment by getting in my own head and not having the confidence to just... Perform. Everyone's here to support me, so just do it. Because otherwise, don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Don't ruin the moment because otherwise, it's not fun for you and it's not fun for the audience. So there you go. And I was That's probably evolved to be. You were ten and you were thinking. Well, that. I, but I like doing drawing. You know, I wanted to get into animation or cartoons or doing a comic strip. Like that's what I wanted to do. But you could. There was nowhere to do it. When I was in high school, year 10, you had to pick your subjects for what you would do 11 and 12 for then when you get out and you want to do a job. And they had this huge phone book type thing that you would flick through. And if you wanted to become a marine biologist, you look up under M, marine biologist, and it would say you need to do biology as a subject, probably maths, this science unit, blah, blah, blah. So that's the course you need to take to get to that job. I wanted to do animation. So I went A, flick, 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 nothing, went back. Maybe I'd missed it. It wasn't in there. But the next one where animation would have been, the next one was artificial limb maker. No word of a lie. And I remember at that time going, right, I have a better chance of making a fake leg for somebody than I do actually doing drawings, making cartoons for a living. Right, okay, well, I need to rethink what I want to do then because apparently that's just not possible. You were the voice of a crab, though. I was. In Finding Nemo. Pixar won an Oscar. You're welcome. You're welcome, Pixar. Hey, hey, hey. This is our spot. Go on, get out of here. Hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, that's it, fella. Just keep on swimming. You got that. Too right, mate. That was a massive deal because as a fan of animation... Like growing up, I think that was my first foray into comedy. I would watch Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, you know, Rabbit Season, Duck Season trilogy is comedy gold. That's what I wanted to do. If you said to me, you could be part of animation doing voices, oh my God, yes, please, sign me up. Where's that in the phone book? I'll do it while making a fake leg. If I have to, (laughs) sure. (laughs) So... That's probably where I first got the comedy bug. I loved cartoons, but like the you know, Mickey Mouse, Disney stuff was wonderful, but it wasn't my jam as much as 
And until they kind of kicked in and went, oh, we need comedy. Robin Williams is the genie. There we go. That's where they found their groove. So I think that's where I discovered comedy and being funny was what I was attracted to. So that's probably where I, I wanted to end up. So to get asked to be in a very famous film was massive and then it was a fantastic film. Let's also oh, now... Oh, sorry, can I, and quickly point out. Please. I still have a, an agent in the States that I do auditions for. I do a lot of auditions for a lot of different things and I don't get them because I realise there's a hierarchy and I'm down the bottom of that hierarchy. However, you are the first person to have been told this publicly. I got to audition, did not get the role, but that does not matter to me because I actually got to audition to be the new Daffy Duck (gasps) maybe two years ago. Wow! I was uh, back for the summer holidays. I'm in a car with a doona over my head to get the sound right as I did the audition for what is the new Looney Tunes show now. Went to a, a very talented actor by the name of Eric Bowser who deserves the role immensely. But even when they said, oh, here's an audition, it's Daffy Duck. And I went, I'm not going to get this, but goddamn, I am going to apply just so I say I can. Yes. Can you do a little Daffy well, Duck? Well, it, was, uh, it wasn't just like old school, you're despicable. It was old school, like, it wasn't like that's more modern. They changed him to be a very conniving, self-centred, chip-on-your-shoulder egomaniac. This was like early Daffy, which is why he was called Daffy. So uh, Porky's Duck Hunt was the first time you ever saw Daffy back in the 30s, where he was first seen leaping across a lake, across the top, bouncing around the top of the water, making this sound... So that was kind of the bulk of what you had to do. I love it. That is so joyful, isn't it? It's great. It's exhausting. Uh, Yeah, I get such a thrill out of doing that job more than just about any other. Oh, I can imagine. So does that mean I'm picturing you at home with your beautiful wife, Tasma, and your daughter, Mm -hmm. Ruby, are you making those sounds and rehearsing and doing all of that around the house and driving them bananas? I don't know if I'm driving them bananas, but that's maybe a question for them to answer. I do know that I felt it was unfair when I auditioned for the role of Fuddle for the Mia and Me movie because it's based off a show on Netflix that my daughter Ruby loved. So then when we would play around the house, I was doing the voice of Fuddle all the time. (laughs) So when it was like, can you audition for this role? I was like, mate. Which which fuddle do you want? Season one, two fuddle or season three fuddle? So uh, so that was, I feel like I've been my whole life auditioning to be a dad by doing ridiculous <laughs> voices. We spent a year reading the Harry Potter books as a family. We'd do a chapter a night. Took us about a year. That's pretty fast reading because they're very lengthy tomes. They are, but we devoured them. And as an adult, it was great to go back and read them again. I would do the voices every time, though. So I would be, you know, reading through and, you're a wizard, Ari. Hagrid, do I have to go to wizard school? It's like, oh, 50 points to Hufflepuff. Uh, all that kind of stuff, you know. So Harry Potter, a new celebrity. So oh, you I enjoyed. Are so good at that. I just thoroughly enjoyed that whole experience. It's purely for my benefit and my daughter's benefit. But yes, I do the. To answer your question from three hours ago, I do the voices around the house, and I thoroughly enjoy it. And I hope, I hope, to my family who is listening, and Ruby's a big listener supporter, loves the Jess Rowe talk show. Uh, that uh, I hope that I am not annoying you too much. <laughs> You say that as a dad you do the voices. How else are you as a dad? How would you describe yourself? I'm amazing. No, I, I look, I'd like to think I'm pretty good. I don't know. You put pressure on yourself until you realise no one knows, especially if you're a first-timer, you don't know what you're doing. No one knows what they're doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. No, right. Mine's in the car right now, which is probably a bad idea. It'll be fine. But I just felt like, well, so long as... I don't know. I think the main rule, not rule, but the only thing Tasma and I said to each other was like, let's just be as open with her as we can for as much as we feel she's willing to take on board. 
So everything doesn't come with a, well, you'll, well, you'll find out later, or, well, that's because we're grown-ups and that's why. But we would at least just try to be, if you had a question, we would try to answer it as best we could. And if we didn't know, we would say, well, we don't know, let's find out to get, like, why is the sky blue? I don't know, let's find out, rather than make something up. It's the refraction of light. The blue spectrum makes it through the ozone layer more than the other colours. That's that very detailed. It is very detailed. Just what? It's magic. That's why it's blue. It's magic. <laughs> They're the sorts of things it's I magic. say. It's magic, Harry. Oh. <laughs> and now, is it true as well that Tasma proposed to you? She did. She That's did. That's pretty cool. I was away in the States. I was doing work in LA and she had created a piece of art, like a painting based around there was a bird motif because she knows I'm into birds. Yeah, it just had marry me on it. So it was wrapped up like a present. And so she'd been working on that while I was away. And then as I have come back, I was in the cab from the airport to home and I thought I'll just call mum, touch base, let her know I'm back. Trip went well, et cetera, et cetera. And she was behaving quite strangely and... She kind of cut me off and said, uh, have, you, have you spoken to Taz yet? I was like, well, no, 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 no. I thought I'd call you. I'm headed home. I will see her at home. Spoilers, my partner lives at home. So, uh, no, I will, I'll see her. Then I just thought I'd talk to you now. And she said, oh, well, what? look, why don't you get home, see her, and then just call me after that? Which I thought was such a weird response, but I didn't overthink it and just went, fine, no problem. And then got home and as it turns out, because she is just a modern woman and of the most elite level, she had not only decided I will propose to him but had then called my mother to ask permission, which was delightful and sweet and beautiful. So I didn't know and then I've come back and she said, I made something for you. So she's wrapped the piece of art and I unwrapped it and it said, marry me. And I looked at her and she said, well, and I just started laughing. We both just started laughing. And I said, is this legit? She's like, yeah. I said, well, you have to say it. And then she couldn't because she was laughing. I said, I'm not, I'm not, you have to say it. You have to do it. You have to officially ask. So she did manage to then officially ask and surprise, surprise, don't mean to give the game away. I said, yes. And then I called mum and went, that's what it was about. She goes, well, I didn't want to ruin it. And if you spoke to me, that's not how my mum's voice is. I don't know why I did that voice. But she said, I was worried if I talked to you for too long, I would ruin it or give the game away. But yes, that's what happened. Oh, that is such a beautiful and romantic story. Yeah, but we're unconventional. Then we got married on a beach and didn't tell anybody that we were doing it and we didn't do the celebrity photos or anything like that. And and I think there was no official record that it even existed for anyone to even know. And that's I think just how it's meant to be. We're not showy people. But yeah, I thought it was that was a really lovely thing that she did. And oh, I don't know where the painting is. It's somewhere in storage. We're what do sort you of, mean you don't know where, where it's it got is? got a lot of stuff. There's a thing where there's a lot of movement happening at the moment, Jess. There's things in storage and we need to find the things. It's there. It's there somewhere. I find it intriguing too that you say you didn't want to make it all celebrity. That mm. it was this is just for us. This is quiet because so much of your life has been so public. Yeah, I think there's an expectation that you share everything, and a lot more now than ever before. But that was never the reason I got into doing all of this. I just liked being silly. I liked performing. And there was an opportunity for that to be a way of earning money. So I went, well, then that's the path I'll take. I've had people, you know, younger people who are trying to get into the business who are looking for advice and they'll say, how can I be famous? And my response is, streak at the football on the weekend. You'll be famous within days. If you want to have a career, that's a different question. But to me, it wasn't about being famous. It's been a byproduct of what I do. And that comes from if you want to do whatever it is you want to do, you want to be good at it. And if you are good at it, that makes you uh, successful. And if it makes you successful, that makes you, quote, unquote, famous. And people are just more aware of you. 
that's not the end game. The end game is the success. You want to do it, but you want to keep doing it, you know? We had our first year doing the show in Channel 9 and they said, that's it, you're done. And I kind of went, oh, that's a shame. But then they were like, you know, you can stick around, but we don't want the show. And I said, well, that's not for me. And I said, look, you know, I had just had 10 weeks of television. That's more than anyone else I know. So I'll take that as a positive. At least I got to do it. So, yeah, the idea of still getting to do it was my motivation, was like, I just want to do this thing with my mates that I enjoy doing that other people apparently enjoy us doing as well, or at least at that time, let us get away with. So that was my motivation, not about, I don't even want to think about nowadays how it has to be about Instagram followers and how many likes on TikTok and YouTube and everything else. To me, that's too stressful for anybody who's trying to do what we do. You're not doing it for the right reasons. And that's not anyone's fault. It's just what seems to be like for you. It'd be it's how many downloads and numbers of this and that. It makes it a lot more difficult to just make your craft. And part of, for you, I mean, you've touched on it in our conversation about the attention that you've had over the years and people looking at you when you don't want them to, people being present, people asking you questions. And so I want to ask a question about how you've managed, I suppose, to keep forging through life when you've dealt with incredible sadness. Well, everybody's had sadness. Everybody's had sadness in their life. I'm no different to anybody else. People but have yours was very public when, sure. you know, you were with the beautiful Belinda. Yes. And you were married. And I mean, you were Australia's sweethearts. And there was so much expectation and pressure. I can't begin to imagine what that must have been like. Uh, Well, at the time, it was was difficult because you're trying to juggle what you're dealing with in life with what you're dealing with at work. And again, having to do promotion which was, it's part of the job. You have to get out there and, you know, let people know what you're doing. But then people wanted to know, but what's happening at home? It's like, it's any business what's happening at home. I'm not here to talk about what's happening at home. If you want to know what's happening at home, you need to know what's happening at home or be a friend of mine. If you're a stranger on the street, you'll get, fine, it's good. Things are good. How are things with you? The idea that I'm out anywhere doing anything to talk about what, you know, no one wants to know, how was your, how was your drive in today? What did you have for breakfast? What plants do you have in your backyard? How many times do you walk your dog a day? Like that sort of stuff is, that's home. I don't know. I, it was just one of those things I never, I found it a very tricky thing to navigate without getting mad at people for prying. Uh, when my response is, well, how do you think it is? It's not good. And anything more than that feels like people just wanting to, not so much pry. Well, I think it was at the time pry because there are people who are like, I need to know so I can write it down and tell people or take it out of context or make that the key piece of this whole chat that we've had. Like I wanted to really get it off my chest, which was never the case. How did you, though, manage? I honestly would just shut down. So if someone asked me a question, I would give them a very brief answer. And if they kept asking, I would... Because also people would be told that's like, there's legitimate no-go zones. For all the years I was doing the show, there was always certain people that would come on the show who were like, we talk about this, we don't talk about that. And you respect that. And if you don't respect that, then you understand that maybe the response you get is not going to be a good one. And that's a roll of the dice that you take. And either you're able to navigate around that or just be prepared that, you know, you might have someone who's been bubbly and effervescent and forthcoming who then closes down. And that's exactly what I would do. So I would close down and I would maybe give a warning. And then I had times where I would literally just sit there with my arms folded and say, I'm just not going to talk about it. That's the only way that you could get through it. Well, I think you're extraordinary. (laughs) I'm not extraordinary. Yes, you are. You are. I feel like I was a curmudgeon in waiting. 
are nonsense. <laughs> How can you be a curmudgeon in waiting? I don't know. And I like a the idea of being a curmudgeon. I, like, I find myself grumbling a bit more at things nowadays. I've, I was probably always a grumbler. But I don't know. I don't know. How do you find it? How do you find the publicity nature of what we do? I think it depends. And it depends where you're at in your life, where the people you love are at. Mm -hmm. And I often will think by sharing something, is that going to not only help me but help other people? Then I'll do it. But if there is not an upside to Mm. doing it, I won't. If I think about my kids, my daughters who are teenagers now, there's things I will share about them, but there's a whole lot I won't because Mm. that's their life and that's their story Mm -hmm. and it's not my right to be speaking on their behalf. Mm. And so it's a tricky one, but I do get that it is important to share I mean, I'm an oversharer. And, I mean, that's <laughs> Maybe the that's thing. it. Look, I don't fault anyone for, if they want to overshare. I'm an overshare. oversharer from way back. How was the drive-in today, my Jess, husband, by the way? My husband, Petey, is not. Right. And so he will, at times when I'd be doing Studio 10, my most recent telly, I'd be chatting about all sorts of things and he'd be watching and he'd send me messages, stop. Yeah. Pussycat, he calls me Pussycat. Nope, no, Pussycat. So that's oversharing. I didn't yeah. need to know that. Yeah, you've jumped. No, <laughs> but, but, but I, my thing now is uh, doing a lot more stand-up nowadays. There is a little bit more of a, a sheepish coming home and going. So I've got a bit at the moment about the fact that you bought our daughter mice. As pets. Oh, mice are horrible. And thank you. Why would you buy mice? That's the only reason I brought it up. I just needed validation oh, and a second bite. They make me shiver. We like have they're a horrible. So uh, I have to say that. Oh. To, now, look, here's my take on it. However, I am very clear, as you well know, my loving partner, that I'm not a big fan of the mice and I wasn't necessarily across the decision to have literal mice in our house. And I do talk about that publicly to complete strangers. So you just need to know that there is a reference to it. However, I quickly move on to the greater idea of mice being pests and vermin and that there is no other sort of pest vermin type creature that you would keep as a pet like a a, a cockroach or something like that. So, yeah, that's the only time I've never otherwise... I think that's the other part of it because I'm not a very public person when it comes to that type of thing. I've never had to worry about in the years I was doing radio. I know so many people who are like, well, my wife farted this morning and here's that story. And then having to go home and apologise because I had nothing else. To I say. have nothing else to talk about. <laughs> my life has been strip mined. So for me, it was always, you know, I think also having a comedy brain helps. I have to let you go, Sim, but I could just keep chatting and chatting sure. to you. In media, we do so many different jobs, so many different roles. I've had a whole lot of stuff that hasn't worked the mm-hmm. way I hoped it would, but that's part and parcel of it. How do you deal with things that don't unfold the way you hope? Well, short answer is fine. As my wife would say, I'm annoyingly glass half full. I guess because my life experience has been a pretty good one, So that from the very early stages, I was doing stand-up with a whole bunch of other people, like my comedy alumni, people like Dave Hughes and Peter Hellyer and American Rosso and Michelle Laurie and a whole bunch of other people. And most other people that I was performing with around that time all got jobs before I did. They all got signed to radio or television or just getting a manager. That was a big thing. So you had representation. I was pretty much one of the last to ever get that. But I wasn't worrying about everybody else. I was just worrying, not even worrying, I was just concentrating on what I was doing, not concentrating on what everyone else was doing and thereby concentrating on what I wasn't doing, if that makes sense. So that I just decided I'm just doing what I want. What do I want to do? Do I want to get on that radio show? No. Good for them that they're doing that and they're earning money. But I love going in to this dingy little television studio with a bunch of 
university volunteer students to make this dog and pony show of a talk show that nobody gets paid for. If anything, costs me $50 a week to pay the makeup person on Channel 31. And this is what I love. I love this. And then that got me spotted by Channel 9. So away we go. We finish at that. That was great. Loved it. Uh, And then they say, you're done. You're finished. Well done. We're going to chuck you on the pile. And I shrug and go, okay, well... What can I do now? Well, people know who I am now. They didn't know who I was before. So now I can do a stand-up tour just on my own name. I don't have to be part of a show with other people. I don't. Ha- it doesn't have to be a group effort. I can do a solo show by myself. Like that's huge for what I do. So then I did that. And then in the meantime, we get picked up by Channel 10. And even the f- first couple of years of that, it, it was a rocky road before we sort of found ourselves. I could look back and go, well, that didn't work and that didn't work. Or I could look and go, or it led to other things, you know. And you don't know. I could say to, you know, I could jump in a time machine and go back to 20-year-old me who's just finished at Channel 9 and is like, oh, well, is me. And just go, here, have a gold Logie. That's all right. I've got plenty more. You keep that one. See you in the future. Like, I don't know what the me from 10 years from now so there's, you know, there's no point worrying about it. You don't know how the story ends. You know, every story needs plot twists. And I would not change a thing. Yes, I have had highs and yes, I have had lows. But where I am now is such a wonderful place to be. Heaven forbid I should go back and change any part of that. And, you know, I could be doing, I don't know, something somewhere but it could be at the effect of having a wonderful home married life with a beautiful child and anything like that along the way. Or that's great, but then, you know, I'm doing a show that I don't like and sucks and is creatively dissolving me from the inside. So where I'm at now is I'm creatively fulfilled with my little travelling show telling jokes to people. Life is great. Honestly, there's not much that I feel I need to change about anything, really. So, uh, yeah, you know, roll with the punches. I don't know. Again, it's a roller coaster ride. Just pack a light lunch, hold on, and when it's done, it's done. And yes, there'll be moments where you go, that was terrifying. But geez, let's do it again. Cannot wait to see what is next, what those plot twists are. That's it, right? And I'm not done yet, so who knows? There's a lot of options left on the table. There's still things I have on my list of things I'd like to do that I haven't had the chance to do. I'd love to do a nature documentary. I would love to do like a comedy David Attenborough. That's what I would like to do. Just a light-hearted take on... My love of animals, which is a a part of me that maybe people haven't seen as much. I'm a huge nature nut and a big proponent of conservation. I'm involved in a couple of different organisations and charities, one of which is me and David Attenborough. Who asked? Yeah, so I'd like to do something along those lines. So there's still that. Well, now that we can travel again, go out and, I don't know, See a hippo or something. Yes. And can I come with you and do a story on pandas? Oh, yeah, you can. I love pandas. What do you like about pandas? Well, that's back to my news presenter days where we'd always finish with a panda story. I'm a hippo guy. They're the most deadly creatures on the planet. Thank you. They are. They you kill are one more of the few people, people who, that's, yes, than pretty much than any, any other, other animal. animal. In Africa combined, <laughs> combined. And we think people have this idea that oh, they're, they're cute a big, and adorable and vegetarian no, who loves wearing tutus. No, no. They can. Aggressive as all get out. And much faster than anybody gives them credit for. I think that's a lot of it, too. Goodness me. Well, like hippo Rose, versus panda, who we've wins? We've covered it all. Have we? <laughs> Great. Well, we've only really just begun, but thank you so much. I look forward to the coming back for the second half of my life. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you. Now, over to Jess Rowe with the late news. Woohoo! I've made it! <laughs> what a life Rove has already led. Can you just imagine what part two is going to involve? 
And if you'd like to catch Rove on stage for his awesome Source Tour, where he shares a new hour of thoughts, ramblings and different sorts of musings, you can grab your tickets at comedy.com.au and we'll put the link in our show notes if that's easier for you. Do not miss him on stage. For more big conversations like this one with Rove, follow the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show podcast. It means you will never miss an episode. And if there's someone in your life who you think might enjoy this conversation, go on, do them a favour, share it with them. And if you love this episode with Rove, I reckon you'll really like my chat with Carl Stefanovic. At the time... I wasn't a good host and I certainly wasn't a great co-host and, you know, wasn't a great friend to everyone that I should have been. You didn't have a guy next to you who, who could have protected you and helped you in the, in the way that, that I should have. And for that, I'm, I'm always sorry. I should have been more there for you. you know, I wish I'd been a better person and a better man and a stronger man, not just for myself, but for you. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Audio producer, Chris Marsh. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter.